What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is June 27th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, happy Monday. Matt, happy Monday. I bet I had a great day at the beach. What'd you do this weekend? <laughs> uh, it was Pride weekend, so we went to the parade, did uh, lots, of, lots of fun stuff with uh, some of our friends in the community. So yeah, great weekend. And, uh, you know, jam-packed show coming up today, so I'm excited. Yeah, we should just get right into it because it's going to be a long one. Let's do it. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way, Monday and Friday. Yes. So rate and review the show wherever you can, and make sure to share our show with your buds, share with your mates, with your pals. We say that every week, but seriously, please do it. And if you really want to help us out, comment on our TikTok videos, like help drive that engagement. So even something like, I liked this, or this was informative, this was funny, just a smiley face. Anything that is a comment will drive engagement and TikTok can promote it. So help us out. All right, let's do this thing. The Dust Bowl. One of those things you might remember from fourth grade history class is that there were dust storms in the Southern Plains and the Midwest region of the U.S. in the 1930s. Crops died and people couldn't grow enough food. So they moved. Yay, Dust Bowl chapter of your textbook, over, done with, that's the end of it. We're going to talk about what actually happened, the fallout from it, and why this is all still important today. Yeah, so here's the History Channel's summary of the Dust Bowl. As high winds and choking dust swept the region from Texas to Nebraska, people and livestock were killed and crops failed across the entire region. The Dust Bowl intensified the crushing economic impacts of the Great Depression and drove many farming families on a desperate migration in search of work and better living conditions. So let's try to understand the why and the how of the Dust Bowl first. It was the result of changes in weather, farm economics, and federal land policies. So first off, you have the Homestead Act of 1862, which gave settlers 160 acres of public land. Then you have the Kincaid Act of 1904 and the Enlarged Homestead Act of 1909, which both served as amendments to further incentivize farming in the Great Plains. Unfortunately, many of these new settlers were not experienced farmers. They were just people who saw an opportunity to get 160 acres of land in a time where it's not exactly easy to make a ton of money and buy 160 acres of land. Yeah, exactly. So there was an old superstition at the time that rain follows the plow, meaning that agriculture would change the climate in a way that made it better for farming. The issue here was the years of wet weather that followed the new settlers made this superstition seem true. World War I created an increased demand for wheat, so farmers began to plow more and more acres of grassland so they could plant wheat, corn, and other row crops. When the Great Depression hit, farmers began to tear up even more grassland to try to produce more wheat and break even on their crop prices. 
So you have more people moving in over a 30-year period, and they're now planting more and more crops because of the rough economy. And then we have the added impact of less native grassland. If you listened to last Monday's interview, you know that covered soil is less prone to erosion. Land like this, on the other hand, could run into some issues if a drought hits and the soil starts to turn into dust. Which is exactly what happened in the dirty 30s as drought hit the Midwest and Southern Great Plains in 1930. This followed with massive dust storms the following year, which led to an estimated 35 million acres of former farmland becoming useless for farming. Another 125 million acres was rapidly losing its topsoil until 1939 when normal rainfall returned to the region. The Dust Bowl lasted almost the entire decade, but its effects lingered long after 1939. The value of agricultural land that had been ruined failed to recover quickly, and so too did the population decline in these areas. People that stayed had increased effects of asthma, some people died of dust pneumonia, and respiratory issues across the board were up. Thousands of people left this area because if you could afford to leave, why would you stay knowing that people around you are dying of dust pneumonia and your crops are failing, there's no water, like, there's no reason to stay if you could afford to leave. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I can't even imagine living during this time, like, just straight up dust, like, tornadoes of dust mm-hmm. every day. I, I just can't even picture a world like that. It must have been absolutely brutal. So something else I want to point out, you know, I, I asked that hypothetical, if you could afford to leave, why would you stay? It's worth noting that a lot of these people came to this area because of government incentives that helped people get land for cheap. So I'm assuming here, but a lot of those people probably couldn't afford to leave because they came into this situation knowing it was a good offer for cheaper land. It's not like you could now sell that land because at this point it is worthless. No one's going to want to buy your house and go live in a dust storm if they don't live in that area. (laughs) So yeah, it just kind of made this problem worse for the people that were there. Yeah, absolutely. If you, like Nick, were saying, oh, I can't imagine this, go check out The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Literary classic. I read it like 20 years ago, so I don't remember any of it, but I remember it's about the Dust Bowl. So maybe, you know what, I'll add that to my summer reading list. Maybe (laughs) I'll I'll throw that on as well. That was like one of the books that everyone read in in high school, and then I just, I never had to read it for one of my classes, so I was like, okay, I'm not going to read it. I think it might have been middle school, which meant I definitely didn't read it because I was not about the assigned reading until, I don't know, ever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Back on track. So President Franklin D. Roosevelt combated the Dust Bowl by creating programs to help displace farmers. But he also addressed the environmental erosion that helped cause the Dust Bowl in the first place. History.com says that Congress established the Soil Erosion Service and the Prairie States Forestry Project in 1935. These programs put local farmers to work planting trees as windbreaks on farms across the Great Plains. The Soil Erosion Service implemented new farming techniques to combat the problem of soil erosion. So this took great planning, and we just kind of want to point out that this is one of those examples of the issue here was displaced farmers. FDR easily could have put in programs that just helped those people. But instead, he also addressed the root cause, which was the environmental erosion. So it's not just the Band-Aid on something that needs stitches. This is the stitches as well. So two years after the Soil Conservation Service had been established, soil loss had been reduced by 65%. 
There was also a focus on planting shelter beds, which are trees and shrubs that could protect soil and crops from wind. They helped to make sure that wind would not cause violent dust storms in the future. And Congress financed a federal program that paid farmers to use new farming techniques to conserve topsoil and restore the land. By the early 1940s, the area had largely recovered, and by the 1950s, things finally felt normal, so to speak, again. Imagine, you know, those first couple of times where you get to walk outside, dust is a rarity, water is in the area again, like, this is why you moved to this area in the first place. That's got to be the biggest relief. Yeah, and for the people who actually stuck it out or just straight up could not afford to leave, it's got to be the the greatest payoff of all time. Like, I can't even picture no water in the area, and now you walk out. And I know this is gradual, it's not automatic, but like every year you're just like, wow, you know, things are starting to get better. Things are starting to look a little bit better. Yeah. We're actually going to be able to live here. I don't have to get up and leave again, even though I just left. My, my neighbor isn't getting dust pneumonia again. Like, <laughs> schools, are, schools are open, kids are safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Soil Erosion Service that we were just talking about, it's now known as the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And that government entity is the one that Nick Shallitz, our interview guest from last week, works for. So if you're listening to this now and you haven't heard last week's yet, really awesome interview. Nick was a great guy and I really enjoyed getting to talk to him. So go check that out if you want to learn more about this topic, about soil health and about why dust is actually a pretty big problem when it's out over a giant, you know, swath of land and it's not just underneath your dresser because you haven't reached <laughs> back and cleaned that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think right now is a good time to take a break. So after the break, we are going to be talking about something similar that's happening in the U.S. today. Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the materials to store craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And we're now going to get into something similar to the Dust Bowl that's going on currently here in the U.S. The Great Salt Lake drying up and creating dusty air. The New York Times published a piece last month by Christopher Flavel that we have linked in your show notes titled, As the Great Salt Lake Dries Up, Utah Faces an Environmental Nuclear Bomb. Utah's Governor Spencer Cox declared a state of emergency because 99% of Utah is in drought right now. 
This drought caused Aaron Mendenhall, Salt Lake City's mayor, to warn that the drought could compromise the water supply for the city. The Great Salt Lake in Utah has already dried up by two-thirds and continues to dry as we speak. Scientists say that because of this, the Great Salt Flats ecosystem is on the verge of irreversible collapse. Scientists also warn that the effects of the lake drying up could begin killing off the lake's insects and brine shrimp as soon as this summer. As the water dries, the salt content increases in the remaining water, so normally the salt content in the lake would be in the 9-12% to range. If the salt content reaches 17%, it would cause issues for the algae in the lake, which is consumed by the brine shrimp. This would then threaten the migratory birds that stop by every year. And how many migratory birds are we talking about, you ask? 10 million birds visit Salt Lake City every year. And not only do migratory birds visit the area, but so do skiers. As the Great Salt Lake dries up, ski conditions at the resorts around Salt Lake City will deteriorate. So the city risks losing tourism money as well. The lake is also a source of magnesium and other minerals, which would stop if the lake dries up completely. But it's not just land and it's not just water that are impacted by this event. Air quality around Salt Lake City would become poisonous on occasion. Just want to run that one back. The air would become poisonous. The lake has high levels of arsenic, so windstorms would not only carry dust to the resident of Salt Lake City, it would carry arsenic in the air. 75% of Utah's residents live in Salt Lake City. So as the arsenic gets into the air, you're talking about 75% of a state's population at risk. Wow. The air quality would also be impacted by years of mining in the area. Heavy metals have ended up in the lake as an effect of mining nearby. So trace amounts of those heavy metals could end up in the air as well. Salt Lake City already has some of the worst air quality in the United States and ranked number 18 in the world in this category during January, according to IQ Air. Yeah, and at the time of recording, Salt Lake City has the 83rd lowest air quality in the world. So we spoke to two of my friends and Salt Lake City residents, Kyle Weinberg and Mackenzie Perquette, about what it's like to live there given this low air quality. Hey, hey Matt and Nick. Nick. First off, thanks so much for having us on. Longtime listeners, first time callers. Like so many others, we moved to Salt Lake City within the last couple of years and from a pretty humid East Coast environment. I'd say it was pretty difficult to adjust to not only the elevation, but also the air is incredibly dry. I've never had to wear lotion before, but if I don't put lotion on my face in the morning, it looks like I just ate a powdered donut going to work. Salt Lake is located in a valley surrounded by mountains, which creates kind of a bowl. When the air gets so bad, you can't see the mountains on the other side, and pressure systems will trap smog in the bowl. This is called inversion. It's like the fog machine straight out of Blade Runner, only the gray sky gets so dense it literally turns yellow. Um, this is basically a weekly occurrence in the summer, but winds from California fires in the 2019 summer uh, blew everything over to Salt Lake, and it was particularly bad. You could smell smoke in your house, and the sky was red despite the fires being over 500 miles away. Uh, checking the air quality index is something that I've never done before moving to Salt Lake, but it's almost a daily occurrence at this point. Water is also a big issue all around. The mountains and especially the ski resorts are seeing less snowpack each year, and melting snow is a major contributor for sustaining wildlife throughout the summers. I feel like I can almost count on one hand the amount of times it rained the first two years I lived here. 
there are almost never any clouds. Um, despite all this, we haven't really gotten any notable recommendations from local government on conservation, although many will xeriscape their lawns with just rocks or gravel. Salt Lake is an idle-free city for cars and is trying to make aspects more bikeable. Check out at the War on Cars and Sweet Streets SLC on Twitter. However, the big influx of people to Salt Lake, especially recently for skiing, means waiting in hours of traffic on a one-way road through the canyons. It's called the Snake of Death. Because all you can see are the taillights of cars for miles. Um, we also have a lot of friends who work in healthcare and are treating COPD patients who have actually never smoked before. Moving to Salt Lake, you hear the air quality is literally a detriment to your life expectancy. Hopefully that with more traction from the Great Salt Lake story, it can force some of the red lawmakers to take aggressive climate action. Certainly having better policies from both sides is going to make an impact, but it seems like it's going to take a major effort in order to reverse some of the things going on here. Thank you, Kyle and Mac, for sending that in. That was awesome. Uh, so my main takeaway for that, local governments aren't really giving out much guidance is number one. Number two, hearing about COPD in non-smokers is absolutely jarring for me like because the air that you breathe is kind of just working against you in this case. And also, Kyle, really glad that you're using lotion because the dry air, that could do some awful damage on your skin. And I think that's one of the more underrated things that we don't really talk about when we talk about dry air. Yeah, great points overall. But like the most shocking thing, I think Kyle said it, but having to check the air quality every single day, mm -hmm. like going out and, you know, COVID is one reason to wear a mask, but terrible air quality is another reason. I can't even imagine living in that specific area and, and having to deal with that right now. And also your area is going through a massive drought. Mm -hmm. It's just brutal. It's, it's going to affect people from moving to, to Salt Lake City and, and Utah in general. Yeah. And you, you brought up masks and how just because of air quality, some people are going to throw on masks. We think about that for very heavily industrializing places. So like, you know, you think of factory cities over in China, for example, that's that's a, a big one. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you see smog in Beijing and you see people wearing masks. You don't think about it, you know, at home in the U.S., in this case, in Salt Lake City. It's just not really something that you think about. And maybe it, it should be. And, and I don't know. I could talk to Kyle and Mac about that and see if there are people who are out just like wearing masks on days where the air quality is that low. But yeah, I mean, one thing that Kyle also brought up that I found very encouraging is that Salt Lake City seems to be making a, a bigger push for less cars. He said it was an idle free city. He said they're trying to implement more stuff to make it more bike friendly. That's great because you can, you know, take away some of the emissions that people are breathing in that they shouldn't be breathing in. Yeah, absolutely. So when air quality gets as low as it can in Salt Lake City, the main advice is sensitive groups should wear a mask outdoors. Everyone else, reduce outdoor exercise. Close your windows to avoid dirty outdoor air. Run an air purifier if you can. So what's important here is, you know, we're talking about a city that a lot of people move to because there's a great outdoor culture. I know Salt Lake City, really popular destination for skiers, for hikers, just for people who like being outdoors in general. It's part of the city's culture. It's part of the city's core. And when air quality gets low like this, the main guidance is, Hey, stay inside. 
Yeah, and that's just no fun for anyone, you know? Like, people don't move there for that. They don't move to stay inside. They go for the beautiful, you know, outdoor nature that there is. Yeah. And living a sheltered life like that's got to be really tough, so... Yeah, it's big sky country. Like, that's what they call it there. (laughs) You go outside, you see mountains, you see this beautiful, open, blue air. And, you know, to have that taken away potentially because of all of the environmental factors that are going on around Salt Lake, that's tough. So we want to get into the driving forces behind this situation. Climate change is one of them. Higher temperatures are causing more snowpack to evaporate before the snow melt reaches the lake. More heat also means that more water needs to be used to water lawns and to water crops. So less water is in the rivers that reaches that lake eventually. And I know Kyle had said that there are people who aren't watering their lawns to combat this, but they haven't really seen any overhead guidance from the local or state government to stop doing this. So I don't know if this is the case, but I would guess that that's probably a rarer occurrence than going out business as usual and watering your lawn when you want it to look more green. Yeah, definitely. And that problem also makes itself worse because a lower water level in the lake actually leads to less snow. Normally, a storm that passes over the Great Salt Lake would absorb some of its moisture into the clouds and then create snow on the mountains. Now, there's less moisture for the clouds to absorb. The other major factor is the population growth in and around Salt Lake City, causing more water to be diverted from rivers and streams to local aquifers. Water that would normally feed the Great Salt Lake now feeds nearby people instead. Yeah, and that's important. Like People need water to live, but unfortunately, the water that's not going to the Great Salt Lake here is really, really crucial for those same people for the air that they breathe. And we talked about population growth. Salt Lake City's population is projected to grow by 50% by 2060, which would mean more water is required to serve the additional people. Yeah, and the good news is that the city has been taking steps to reduce water consumption by businesses that require significant water. They have actually stopped issuing permits to those businesses so they can't operate in Salt Lake City. The city has not increased the price of water, though. Yeah, and that's important because Salt Lake City actually has some of the lowest per gallon water rates in the United States, but it also consumes more water per person than other desert cities. You've got to think that people and businesses would be more likely to reduce their consumption if they were paying more for that same consumption. And when we compare it to other desert cities, Salt Lake City even consumes more water per person than Phoenix, Arizona, which notoriously is in a desert. <laughs> like there's, yeah. there's not much going around on around Phoenix. A lot of people have said it's a silly place to ever put up a city. And if you were going to design it today, it would not make sense to do that. And Salt Lake City has more water consumption per person than Phoenix. Yeah, it should definitely be an eye opener. And Republican State Representative Robert Spenlove introduced a bill that would block HOAs from requiring that their members maintain lawns. The bill failed due to local governments lobbying against it, but how much water is being used on the lush lawns found in the suburbs of of Salt Lake City right now? Yeah, man, I I don't know. It's like, I don't know the numbers, but it's more than the city can afford right now, and that's the part that's concerning. I feel like if something can't grow naturally without a ton of intervention, then growing it at your home is a bad idea. Yep. So 
Here on TPT, we're all about native plants, and I think if you're living in a desert city, it's probably not great to have, you know, grass that grows well on a lawn in a very humid, rainy environment. But yeah. So Utah lawmakers across both parties have begun to push for more aggressive action here. Some blame climate change. Others focus on water consumption. Either way, if no urgent action is taken, Utah's Great Salt Lake will be a desert and Salt Lake City will have no drinking water by 2040. Nearby towns may also be rendered uninhabitable by toxic dust. And look, if you're hearing this and you're saying there's no way that could happen, this sounds way too alarmist, this happened to Owens Lake in California. Owens Lake has been dry since the 1920s due to the streams that fed the lake being diverted to the Los Angeles Aqueduct. Today, it is the single greatest source of dust pollution in the United States and has caused nearby towns to be abandoned due to lowering air quality. Particulate matter in the air from the dust pollution has worsened asthma, increased heart attacks, and increased premature deaths for residents. The amount of particulate matter 10 micrometers or smaller, or PM10, near Owens Lake has been as much as 138 times what is deemed safe by the Environmental Protection Agency. And this scenario is what everyone wants to avoid for Salt Lake City. So the attempts to solve the issue at Owens Lake included covering the lake bed in gravel, spraying water to hold the dust in its place, constantly tilling the dry earth, and creating low ridges to catch those dust particles that just seem to run rampant before they can actually become airborne. So look, there are steps to solve the issue. It's still the single greatest source of dust pollution in the US. And this is something that, you know, could happen in Salt Lake City if quick action isn't taken. Yeah. So basically you need to address the root cause. Like you need to address water usage and maybe start charging more so that people can, you know, reduce their their water consumption year over year. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you, you make an impact, but you got to do something because if what they said is true, 50% um, increased population by 2060, you're looking at a disaster waiting to happen, honestly. Yeah, and that's that's why one of the state lawmakers said it's an environmental nuclear bomb. Like that wasn't just a headline. That part was in quotes because a lawmaker was saying this. So, yeah, I, I mean, they're aware of the situation at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're in state Congress or the federal government to protect the people of your state, you know, like you're serving the people of the country, but as a Utah representative, your focus is mostly Utah. And in this case, you know, it's not too late to save this. It's just going to take a lot of work, a lot of water conservation and, the population growth there is is really going to be the main kicker because you can conserve the water you have, but you're still going to need more water as more people come in. And that's where this gets really, really dicey. So look, we're, we're hoping that this can get addressed before we have to go into damage control on the dust. That's just running rampant on the city. Yeah. And like Kyle said, like he's checking the air quality every single day. So just imagine the damage we, that's already been done by, you mm-hmm. know, furthering people's asthma or, you know, heart attacks, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And Mac brought up COPD as well. So, I exactly. mean, like there are already ongoing issues where your life expectancy is decreased by living in or near Salt Lake City for a long time compared to, you know, living somewhere where you're not breathing in dust all the time. Yeah. 
This is very interesting to research, but not exactly the happiest topic. Uh, that being said, really important for everyone to know this. So, Yeah, eye-opening in the worst way. Yeah, agreed. And on that somber note, that is going to do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I will be back on Friday for some quick hits. So make sure to follow us on our social medias at Planet Today Pod for more TPT in the meantime. Thanks again to Kyle Weinberg and Mackenzie Perquette for uh, helping out with this episode as our local SLC residents. For the Planet Today, I'm Matt Norton. And I'm Nick Janusa. See you on Friday. Peace. Peace.